the Wildlife Observer Network. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Onward for Wildlife, a political podcast from the Wildlife Observation Network. I'm your host, Taiki James, and today we're going on word with Jasmine Murphy. She has her master's in environmental policy and management at American Public University after earning her bachelor's of science in zoology at UC Santa Barbara. She has two books that we're going to be talking about today. Uh, one, Americans Hate Coyotes, and A Hot Read for the Summer, You're Not a Conservationalist. Um, she's a psychomer, and we're very happy to have her, and we're going to have her first just kick off and explain um, what does psychom mean, because I think that will get us started right where we need to be in this. All right, that sounds awesome. Okay, first I want to say thank you so much for having me on. I'm really excited. This is my first like podcast interview ever, so I'm really excited. Um, yeah, so psychom. Psychom is just a mashup word of science communication. And basically the goal of science communication is to make scientific literature and scientific research available to the public and not keep it so exclusive to academia. So there's so many different ways to do SciComm and just going on hashtag SciComm on Twitter or hashtag science Twitter, you'll see so many different approaches to it. There are people that do makeup tutorials and teach you about the different plumage of birds based on the color of their makeup. Um, then you have people like me who do science threads once or twice a week and, you know, teach you either about a particular piece of scientific literature or a particular species. So it's, it's just this huge world of, you know, the movement of making scientific research and literature more accessible and freely available to the public. That's awesome. And um, this is something I want to touch on a little later after we get on the meat and potatoes. But um, you have a platform called Black Flower Science Co. And my understanding is that is one of your avenues as a creator and writer mm -hmm. that you do your SciComm through, would you, when you say? Yes. So that is a huge part of um, my SciComm work. I've actually been doing science-related and science-themed blogging since... 2015, um, when I first started um, in my whole kind of like research and communication outreach journey, uh, I went to Serengeti National Park to study wildebeest and I started a platform um, for just telling people about my experience. And so that over time has evolved into Black Flower Science Co, where my goal is to increase representation of um, people of color in academia and STEM and also um, in representation and you know inclusivity for neurodivergent people because I am somebody who struggles with well I won't say struggles with who lives with mental illness. Um, I have generalized anxiety disorder and PTSD and depression, and so that's a lot of people are discriminated against in um, academia as a whole, but especially in mm -hmm. STEM when others find out yeah. you know they struggle with these kinds of things, and so that's part of my goal is just making. Um, you know, making it easier to talk about and making mm -hmm. it mm -hmm. normal for people with these conditions to feel like, hey, like I'm a scientist, scientist too. I don't have to be afraid to talk about these things and, and um, you know, live in fear that my research is going to be condescended upon or something. Yeah, so. you wouldn't want that. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. Um, so we're going to get right into what I like to call the meat and potatoes. So the title of this episode is called the subject line of the email that you sent um, my colleague, which was federal cruelty uh, to, to coyotes. Would mm -hmm. you mind expounding on that? Yeah, so <laughs> I'm very, very vocal about this. Um, I am not a fan of the federal agency called Wildlife Services. Um, they are a division of the United States Department of Agriculture, um, Animal and Plant Health Inspection Services. So that's USD APHIS Wildlife Services. Um, the reason that I am not happy with them, and actually very a lot of scientific organizations, especially um, American Society of Amalogists, over decades have not been happy with them. And the reason being is that they implement extremely um, biased lethal control measures against coyotes. And these methods are extremely indiscriminate. Um, you know, they've killed 
millions, and that is not an exaggeration, they've killed millions of native animals, native species um, to North America, just in their, their obsessive focus on killing coyotes. And since 1996, actually, they've killed over um, 3 million coyotes. And it's, it's, it's disgusting to even say that. Um, but, you know, it's based on just this old Western mentality of, you know, predators are the enemy, they're competitors, because, you know, hunters needs wants to hunt deer and elk and things like that. And any predator, whether it be a coyote, whether it be a wolf, um, a mountain lion, they're seen as competition. Which, I mean, ecologically, I guess you can sort of say they are, but the way that we go about managing them is entirely based on this idea that they are some kind of pest that needs to be done away with. And the entire operation of wildlife services is so centered on that, and they refuse to even see their own research um, that proves that non-lethal management, not exclusively, but um, a an integrated approach, something that they claim to have right now, but an integrated approach between non-lethal and lethal management is the best option, and that's been proven over and over again, even by their own researchers, and yet they continue um, obsessive lethal control. Okay. Uh, I have a couple questions to help clear some things up for the audience because you, you gave us a few things that were acronyms and oh, we want to, yes. we want to break, we want to break a few of those down to help us catch up where you are. So okay. one of the acronyms you used was ADC. Yeah. Could you yeah. tell us what that so, is? Yeah. So, um, Basically, the ADC Act um, is is the Animal Damage Control Act, um, and that's something that's been in effect since 1931. And the core, and this is just based on some of the literature that I that I've read on this topic. Um, the core of this and why it's a problem is because it allows wildlife services to use private funding to for for all of their operations. So the the problem with that is that it introduces a lot of conflict of interest. And you know, when we talk about this is all in the context cuz you know, you have to talk about all of the context here. Yes, please. This is all in the context of the early 1900s when European settlers were coming in, you know, and wiped out the bison populations, wiped out the prey species of coyotes and wolves. And so because they did that, then coyotes and wolves and other predators started to um, depredate livestock. And since then, it's been like this huge war, like this turf war that we've been trying to, that we've been fighting for hundreds of years now. And um, what the ADC Act does is it allows people or agencies or, you know, agricultural professionals, whatever they may be, hunting agencies, it doesn't even matter. If they have a specific interest in eliminating coyotes or quote unquote managing them in a lethal um, manner, then they are able to fund wildlife services. And because they are funding, they are direct stakeholders, which means that they have a say in the way that um, the agency goes about managing these animals. And there's there's a lot more to the ADC Act, but that's the most problematic piece of it is because that's mm -hmm. been in effect since 1931 and many people have called them out for it and asked for it to be addressed, but it, stay, it stays the same. Help me understand, where in the federal government can I find wildlife services? So they are a, they're kind of like a sub-subdivision. So you're going to mm -hmm. hear them and it, it's it's a little bit in a gray area because I've seen them addressed as only under the USDA, but I also see them addressed under um, the APHIS, which is the Animal and Plant Health Inspection Services. Um, so it's, it seems a little bit vague, but generally they're under the USDA. And mm -hmm. their primary purpose is to mitigate quote unquote wildlife damage. And that's, to me, that's such a problematic term because it already is human focused. Yeah. What, of damage can wildlife do to their own, you know, their native habitats, but that's the entire, I won't say the entire, but that is the primary purpose of wildlife services is to mm -hmm. mitigate that under the USDA. Mm -hmm. A phrase you used I would love for you to uh, define or at least to provide some examples on is non-lethal management uh, or non-lethal wildlife management. You also talked about lethal wildlife management. I think most people can assume 
what exactly that means, but can you just tell me the difference between those two, maybe some examples, help us understand what's actually happening to yeah. the coyotes. Yeah, definitely. Okay, so starting with lethal management, um, I, I want to explain a little bit what I mean about it being indiscriminate. So I'm pretty sure that most people in North America have been, you know, have heard a story every now and then of dogs going into, you know, the woods behind the backyard or something like that and dying because of a poison trap or, you know, a leg hold trap, something like that. Um, these types of measures are used with the intention of killing one or more, often more, um, coyotes and lethally removing them from an area so that any sort of interaction, negative or neutral, honestly, um, so that any sort of interaction doesn't happen again. And the reason that I call that indiscriminate or that many refer to it as indiscriminate is because there's no way to specify it to the coyote. If a dog, which, you know, has happened multiple times and has actually happened with children too. If a dog or a child or any other living thing goes up to one of those baited traps and it's baited with poison, um, or excuse me, not baited with poison, but loaded with poison, then it's it's going to kill them too. There's no way to specify or, you know, make exclusive these types of control methods. Um, they've also done things as they've destroyed coyote dens, which in some cases requires, you know, some sort of explosive device or just things of that nature. These things are so out of our control. You can't determine what animal approaches poison. You can't determine what animal runs in front of, you know, any sort of trap or any sort of gunshot. Like it just, it doesn't, you can't control those things. So that's what I mean when I say indiscriminate lethal control. When it comes to non-lethal control, there are actually, there's a lot of different ways that you can handle this. And that's why non-lethal control is so much more effective than lethal because, you know, with lethal control, you're just taking care of the problem very temporarily. There's going to be another coyote born. There's going to be another one that immigrates into the space that was left by the one that was removed. There's, it, it happens and it's called the rebound effect. Um, but we'll get into that at another time. But yeah, there's basically there's no way to control this. And so on the lethal or excuse me, the non-lethal side is when you start to open up all sorts of avenues of learning coyote behavior, learning coyote ecology and cognition. Um, and the reason that you would have to learn these things is because you need to, quote unquote, teach the animal to avoid humans again, because they've gone through what's called um They've experienced habituation and they, what that means is they've gotten used to people. They've gotten used to being in these anthropogenic spaces so much so that they, they live there now. We share these habitats now. Like, like uh, raccoons or possums. Um, I can think of a few things. The urban wildlife <laughs> podcast does talk a lot about urban wildlife. Um, and I think coyotes definitely belong in that, right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. There's entire urban ecosystems now, um, that are there to stay they're they're this is now a natural thing for them um you know pigeons is another great example crows ravens they're all a part of these concrete jungles i'll say um mm -hmm. and they've adapted to living alongside us and so these non-lethal measures would allow us to continue to share that space but share it in a way that is supportive of coexistence and it, it gets rid of this idea that we need to be separate, that we are somehow separate. Um, I think that's something that people people are, are really struggling with seeing. And that goes back to us seeing as coyotes as just pests that need to be done away with. I think it's very easy to forget when we're in suburban neighborhoods and things like that, that they are a native species to North mm -hmm, America. Mm -hmm. They were here far before we were. Um, they evolved right alongside the gray wolf. Um, this was between like three and five million years ago. Humans, I think, are only a couple hundred thousand years old. So it's like, you know, they're yeah, we're new here. Something. We're new here. Yeah, we're new here. Like, this isn't something <laughs> we're still figuring it out. The coyote. So mm -hmm. anyway, to summarize, yes, non-lethal control would be implementing things such as environmental changes. So do you need to get rid of a ton of vegetation in your backyard? Do you need to um, stop feeding, like leaving pet food out. Do you need to stop, you know, just 
generally interacting with wildlife in the way that you currently are, identifying what are some behaviors that might be attracting coyotes to your neighborhood. So training and educating the public, but also implementing measures that are effective for the way that coyotes think and behave um, to encourage them to, you know, not maybe share so much space with us or share space with us in a different way. Um, mm-hmm. So there, there's so many different ways to implement that. Yeah, I really, really like, I mean, that the way you said that made me think about uh, a term that probably exists, but I wrote it down for the first time, moral ecology. Mm-hmm. Because you talked about how non-lethal management is is a way to address the habits of humans and coyotes mm-hmm. so that that could that can in, in one way with less resources uh, perhaps mitigate the threats posed by coyotes um that's just an interesting idea um but you know just so we fully understand why they're they being wildlife services um are so attached to coyotes uh, you said they killed you know three million since the 90s um, yeah, is it a overpopulation problem is it has it been coyote bites of coyote interactions with humans have gone up has a human ever been killed by a coyote like what do you think yeah. is like the underpinning of this massive it seems narrative that coyotes are like this threat that need to be extinguished not just dealt with but extinguished um you know even to the point that uh and i want and i hope you can mention this more that there's a few states that have killing contests oh yeah oh yeah that's a very popular thing coyote derbies have you ever been to one no i actually (laughs) i've never until i'm trying to remember the first time i even heard about this i think it was from a okay so i'm context I'm from a rural town, Um, and so a lot of these things were just kind of like briefly introduced to me just throughout my childhood, Um, and I never thought that much about them, but I think it was when I was in high school, either when I was in high school or just leaving for college, that I started hearing these stories about like just people being proud of how many coyotes they had killed that day or just something like that. And it was just super, it was really weird to me um, that anybody would be proud of something like that. And just Mm -hmm. super brief disclaimer, I'm not anti-hunting in total. There are a lot of different caveats, but this in particular is not something that I support. That's what I was going to ask you about, honey. Yeah. (laughs) So, um basically the coyote derby what that is and it's it's not just for coyotes they do it for like mountain lion or they can't do that that's quite illegal um but they do it for you know nuisance slash predator species that they are legally allowed Mm -hmm. to kill in mass um foxes being another one yeah so they basically get together these they are you know hunters whether it be amateurs whether it be professionals whatever anybody that has an interest in killing coyotes will get together and determine a set period of time in which everybody kills either the most coyotes they can or the biggest coyotes they can. And for this, they receive, yeah, for this, they receive competition. It can be prizes like really cool belts or um, apparel, or sometimes it's money prizes. Now, Um, now, who organizes the events? Are these events that are put on by your local coyote killing chapter of... New Mexico, or is this something that's organized by the city, the county, the state, the federal government? It's definitely not um, something that's associated with governmental authorities, to my knowledge. I actually really don't know who puts these together. I think it's just a, you know, a collective enthusiast kind of group of, you know, we're all hunters in this area, local hunters. Let's get together and just have a derby. That's to I was my about to say, how is that regulated? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That 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 seems troubling because my question is, you know, how do you regulate that? And uh, you know, is there somebody from like the uh, State Department of Game that you know yeah. officiates the game and officiates the sport in some way, or uh, so make that, sure that they're they they might be on state owned land, like a state park, to do that? Like, you know, I wonder how the government is involved in such an enterprise. Yeah. So okay. So that's a really good question because. It's not something that is 
regulated per se. And the reason I say that is because it's entirely legal because there are no bag limits, no possession limits on many different, they're called non-furbearing, um, non-furbearing mammals, um, or just non-game as well. But so those include obviously your coyotes. Um, I believe one of the foxes, probably gray foxes are in there, but basically the point is there are no federal or state imposed limits, the legal term of kill, pursue, hunt, anything like that. Um, in any given time frame throughout the entire year. So legally you can kill as many coyotes you want without repercussion. But there are states that have recently implemented um, laws that forbid these coyote derbies. So California and Arizona are two of them. I know there's a handful more, um, but there are specific laws now that make that practice, that entire game Mm -hmm. illegal because because it's legal. It's yeah. unfortunately very legal to kill that many animals just for the heck of it. Well, according to the Center of Biological Diversity, according from a press release dated April 2nd, 2019, New Mexico is, uh, is bans destructive coyote killing contest. And the governor signed a bill abolishing organized competition killing of coyotes for prizes yeah. and entertainment. I do want to say that this bill, according to the same source, uh, this bill did have bipartisan support in the state house in New Mexico. So this is definitely something that perhaps is getting a, a second look at because, yeah. like you said, it was the settlers coming from Europe during the 1900s, early 1900s that were quote-unquote manifesting destiny while wiping out, mm-hmm. you know, um, the the populations of bison, the populations of wolves and, and, and coyotes still, um, you know, to what we have today. Added on this press release, just to add this uh, to your point, California banned the awarding of prizes for killing four fur bearer, not four bearer, that was mine, that was <laughs> me. So things that bear fur, as you could imagine, Mm -hmm. and non-game species in 2014, and Vermont uh, banned coyote killing contests in 2018. Cities and counties in Arizona, New Mexico, and Wisconsin have passed resolutions condemning wildlife killing contests. So that that is inclusive to coyotes, but I'm imagining that may include, as you said, what, foxes and um, mountain lions. I really, what I want to point out about that, about this, really positive spreading about, you know, policy changes and all of this kind of stuff is that, um, and there's a lot of literature on this lately of this is a, an illustration of the kind of evolution of public perspectives and public values on wildlife management and how that's influencing these policy changes. Um, because I hate to bring this up because this was such it was a really transformative time, but it was also, you know, a lot of environmentalists were kind of just like, duh, that was their reaction. But as far as Cecil the Lion, when Cecil the Lion happened, the entire world woke up to environmental welfare and, and wildlife welfare. And so since then, there's been so much more um, action on the the general public side of things in terms of influencing changes and legislation legislation that's been in place for for years for decades for as long as the u.s has been around and had like federal law and blah 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 all that kind of stuff because of that huge reaction of cecil like to cecil lyon's death we've seen a lot more people get more vocal about what they care about in wildlife management and how you know them learning that they can be involved in that process and it's been it's been awesome but at the same time it's it's sad because this has been going on for so long and so many people have been fighting for this and it, you know it took it took that long to do something about it but on the positive end yes there has been a lot of change regarding um coyote derbies and predator killing contests and just that sort of I'll, I'll hold off on the word that I was going to use but <laughs> that sort of um, not great entertainment is where I will leave that alright that's fair that's yeah. fair. I'm not going to argue I'm not going to argue there so I think one of the things you, you highlighted really well um, was how social or how like a community of people who once were not aware of these uh, situations, not aware of these conditions for wildlife, 
now feel a sense of obligate or maybe feel a sense of responsibility or a sense of obligation to speak to their elected officials and to move some things to get some things happening. And, you know, I want to ask you, is there any uh, bill that you're currently looking at in Congress or uh, any any legislation that you're watching move um, that's going to address this issue, you know, either by part or in whole or if such legislation doesn't exist, what would you propose as a, you know, as an amendment to what that program exists if you don't think about outright abolishing it? Yeah, so I wouldn't say that I have a specific um, piece of legislation in mind right now, but one of the, and I was just listening, actually it was um, Urban Wildlife podcast that I was just listening to about this um, and a couple of other things, but I think the biggest issue right now which is connected to a whole network of other issues is the construction of the border wall the reason that i have an issue with this is because very few people are talking about the effect this is going to have on not just wildlife in general but the way they're able to migrate between places immigrate between um you know, just the continental United States and down into South America, because a lot of our North American species are also native to Central and South America. And some of coyotes have kind of expanded down that way. So it's not going to necessarily damage the coyote in the way that it's going to damage other species. But the reason that that is, you know, the, the way that that relates to coyotes is if you kind of bar I'm going to say if you if you cut off that migratory route in such a way that's going to affect so many it, prey species but also predator species and that's going to be another form of um comp- competition release competitive release on the coyotes and they're going to start expanding even more because they have less to compete with or they have weaker predator populations to compete with. There's just, there's so many different ways that that's going to affect native wildlife in North America in general. But then the the network of issues that I kind of alluded to is also the fact that since this administration came into the White House, there have been, I believe, somewhere in the 40s or 50s um, of environmental regulations that have been overturned or completely pulled back, completely undone. and that is something that I'm very concerned with. So that's that's why I say I don't have particularly one piece of legislation in mind because there are so many things that are being completely reversed that we we just can't afford it at this point. We can't afford it anymore. Um, and so I would just say, you know, on, on the state level, make sure you're paying attention to who you're voting into office when they, in terms of their environmental perspectives, um, the sorts of laws that they either seem like they would support or are on record supporting. Um, and then as far as federal government, we just, we need to get that guy out of there because he's he's quite literally killing us um, and killing all of our native wildlife. So I, I couldn't possibly in this time narrow it down to just one law or one individual. Um, I just feel like there's there's too much to be done. You, you you speak very humbly. Uh, the regulatory state of environmental laws and statutes that uh, by executive action can be, as you said, rolled back or interpreted differently or, as you said, just completely written off. Yeah. You know, there, there, there's actually a lot that we enjoyed for a while. Um, and we don't realize how easy or sometimes how structured government is. And when you can pull one thing out from that structure for whatever political reason you want to pull this small statue out, that topples, you know, the the effects that that can lead to can mm-hmm. topple an entire ecosystem. Mm-hmm. And, you yeah, know, absolutely. maybe and, and I don't think folks either folks don't know this or if they do know this, they don't care um, And the folks particularly that I'm mentioning are the ones that get elected and get sworn in and then become our lawmakers and interpreters. Yeah. Um, yeah. So what was it about coyotes that really got you? Actually, it was completely just by happenstance because this came out of one assignment for, um, it was at the beginning of my master's program. And I had to come up with a topic for, you know, developing an environmental management plan. And so 
I didn't know what to talk about. So I chose um, community gardens <laughs> and it was so boring. I love, I love gardening. I really do. But um, yeah, don't let the garden club hear that. Don't let the garden club hear that. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm sorry, everybody who likes gardening, but it was just, it was such a boring thing. I was not driven to talk about it. I found no passion in it whatsoever. And so I had to change it because, you know, if you, if you don't care about what you're writing, then truly, truly. it's going to be really, it's, it's not going to be a good product. Yeah. And so, also like, I don't think there's anyone going around indiscriminately killing community gardens. gardens and if there right, was, yeah. oh my God, that would, that <laughs> would be a topic. Right but now. <laughs> if that yeah. were to be the case, oh man, who would, oh, oh boy. My blood boils just thinking about it. Yeah, so I I was just super bored with that. So I was like, I need I need to change this. Like, mm -hmm. I'm not gonna get through this program because it, it if that topic that you chose, you can choose to have it, um, you know, throughout your program. That could be your study topic, your study species, whatever. So I had to take a couple days and just kind of think about like what isn't really addressed right now. What is a, a huge problem that everybody knows about but nobody's doing anything about. Um, and so I just started thinking of, you know, what's special to my hometown? Where do I, you know, what have I been exposed to um, environmentally throughout my childhood? And I realized that I see coyotes absolutely everywhere. So I started looking up sample management plans for them and started learning about how relatively little research on the species, um, just because of the overall negative sentiment towards them. But not only that, there's just, there's not really that many management plans in effect for them. Um, people just kind of write them off as their pests. We got to kill them and just leave it at that. So I got really interested in, you know, why do we hate them so much? Why aren't we doing anything about it? Why have they expanded everywhere? And it was just this rabbit hole that I'm still going down. Because um, it's just really interesting to me that this animal that everybody sees in North America, that everybody shares a living space with. There's no way to get away from coyotes at this point, but yet people know so little about them. Everything that we know about them, and we being the general public, is, is entirely based in myth. I'll definitely say that I'm one of those people of the public where most of what I know about coyotes is surrounded in myth. I thought coyotes uh, order contraptions from acne companies <laughs> yeah. and try to use yeah, it to so capture a roadrunner. I thought that was the point, but <laughs> turns out coyotes are not bipedal. That was that yeah. was one of the first things I learned, but coyotes do not normally walk on two legs and yeah. uh, have anthropomorphic expressions. Mm -hmm. So that's I'm one of those people. I'll be humble enough <laughs> yeah, to say that. It's, it's hard. It's devastating to learn those things, but um. Yeah, so I just I I was just so drawn to them after, and I've always I've always had a place in my heart for for predatory species. I just love them. I've always been about big cats, which is why I thought I was gonna go the big cat route with my masters. But something about coyotes, they just they really got me. So yeah. Well, I'm 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 sure they're more than blessed to have you as a strong ally. And Thank you. Uh, if if there's anything that we can do to get more management plans or to get better management plans, what what can someone do if they're in high school or if they're in college and they're just like, well, if we need more good ideas, where do I put them or where do I go to put these good ideas to good use? Okay, so there are a couple things that you can do as individuals. Um, it's really easy to find management plans if you just, you can just go and type it into Google and just coyote management plan and you'll find the different cities and stuff that actually have them in place because there's, there's really not that many um, across the U.S. And you can start looking at the different samples if you want, if you're interested in that. Um, start looking at those and probably looking, just comparing it to your city, like what of this plan are we doing and what are we not doing? Um, and if you're so inclined, then you can begin to contact um, local authorities. It doesn't have to be your local government. You can talk to um, Wildlife officials, for instance, if you're in California, you can also contact the um, Fish and Wildlife Department. So there, there's things on a on a legislative le level you can do, but on an individual level, to I won't say help coyotes because they're doing great. <laughs> um, they they will not be. That's one of the things also that I was drawn to about them is they they expand despite adversity despite us trying to kill them for the last several hundred years they have 
managed to grow across the entire continent, which is good and bad. But um, on an individual level, what you can do to help the coexistence is a better way to say it um, between humans and coyotes is really paying attention to how you're behaving in the natural environment. And the natural environment includes your suburban neighborhood. That's something that a lot of people need to get through their heads now. Is they are here. <laughs> They're here to stay. <laughs> so some things you can do. Do not leave pets outside unattended. That is one of the biggest things. People leave small pets outside and then are surprised when a coyote takes it, when a hawk takes it, when an owl takes it. You're, you're, you're sharing space with these animals now. This is not something that we can negotiate. Now um, they're sharing food. Yeah, and we're sharing food now. And that's another thing is people leaving um, you know, pet food out, whether it be just forgotten dog bowls out for their pets or if they're doing... Um, feral cat feeding stations, which I will not go into, but oh lord, we could yeah. do it, but we could do it. <laughs> we could, we absolutely could, but we will not listen. Listen, um... <laughs> I, I do have to plug that the Urban Wildlife Podcast has at least two or three. I know yeah. one particular episode about feral cats, but they they mention it, uh, you know, to some degree or have somebody speak on it at least two or three times. So, yeah, feel free to check out Urban Wildlife Podcast. Yeah, they they have awesome information there. I think it is, I think it is too. I don't know, but um, yeah. So that is that is something that many supporters of feral cat colonies do not realize is that they are contributing to this problem of well-off coyote populations in urban or anthropogenic areas um, because they will come to these feeding stations. It doesn't even have to be cat food or dog food. They'll come for your trash. They'll come for bird feed. Mm -hmm. They'll they're they're omnivores. And this is another thing that people don't understand about coyotes is that they are opportunistic omnivores. They most likely will be eating if it's not, you know, human food or human waste or, you know, anything like that. They'll be eating berries. They'll eat small mammals. Um, they'll eat other plant vegetation, and it's so uncommon for them to go and take down a deer or something like that. That's something that people think coyotes do all the time is just constantly attacking deer and, and cows and lambs. Like, that's, that's not something that they do. They eat whatever's in front of them, honestly, when they're hungry. Um, and emphasis on when they're hungry, because predators don't just go around eating things all the time. That's actually... <laughs> not ecologically sound for them to do. Um, but other mm. things that you can do to kind of create a better coexistence is don't don't succumb to being a an animal lover is the way that I'm going to say it. Because a study found, um, I think it was in 2014 or 15, that it's the people that identify as animal lovers that are one of the most likely to instigate these negative interactions because they'll want the coyote like, oh, a coyote's so cute. I want to touch him. I want to talk to him. I want to let my pet play with him. Yes, people do let their dogs play with coyotes. I've watched many videos of people oh. doing this and thinking it's cute. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's not good. Do not do it. Um, don't offer coyotes food or water. If they look skinny, it's because they are skinny. Coyotes are really lanky animals. They're really not that big. They only get to about 45 pounds um, over here on the West Coast. And they just have what's what I like to call the husky syndrome. They're just super floofy, but they're really skinny. Um, that's just how they are. And you got to you gotta stay out of it. Just stop, mm -hmm. stop instigating these interactions. So that was a really great segue that I know that you did very intentionally because you're <laughs> yeah, working absolutely. on a book that talks a little bit about what people or people who, who, who love animals, people who love the idea of conservation, mm -hmm. but when it comes down to the action of conservation or at least um, participating in the larger conservation movement in some ways, they're rigid, maybe resistant or ignorant and... I understand you want to speak to that in this new book you have coming out in the summer. Yeah, absolutely. So this is going to be called You're Not a Conservationist. And I've been sitting on this book for quite a while now. Um, this is something that I am very, very passionate about because there is this huge social media wave of people, um, whether that be the people from Myrtle Beach, whether it be brother nature whether it be 
Um, just people oh, like, you're going to say names? You yeah. didn't want to say the name of the president, but you're going to say um, Brother Nature? You're going to say Brother Nature's name? Yeah. Wow, wow. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. <laughs> but there's, there's this very um, specific group of people who like to feature wild animals on their social media accounts in a way that they really should not be. You should not be approaching wild animals and attempting to feed them, attempting to touch them, anything like that. They are wild animals. They need space and they deserve our respect. They deserve and need our respect. It's connected to so many different problems if you're trying to feed or in any way physically interact with a wild animal. The reason is because the, the habituation that I talked about earlier, whether it be a deer, a coyote, a bear, if you're getting them used to human presence by feeding them or just simply trying to edge closer to them every time you happen uh, happen across one, you're contributing to their death. Blatantly, that's just that's what it is. You're contributing to their death. The reason being is because they're going to come back. They're going to keep coming back and looking for those food resources. They're going to keep coming back and looking for those interactions because it has rewarded them in some way, shape, or form in the past. And when that happens, there's no way to tell whether they're going to come back to a person who loves animals or is terrified of animals or just hates animals. You don't know if that person's going to call, um, you know, wildlife control and have that animal euthanized, which is what happens all the time. There's just, there's so oh, yeah. many reasons you should not be habituating wildlife. And that's exactly what you're doing if you are interacting with these animals in this way. Additionally, when it comes to accounts that feature, you know, super quote unquote exotic animals like tigers and leopards and all kinds of stuff that, you know, we only see in the zoos, but oh my goodness, this person gets to cuddle this animal. That's just so cool. Like, no, that's not okay. The reason for that is that is not conservation. That is entertainment, period. That animal is not seeking out human interaction. If you want to start going down the whole like rabbit hole of what if they enjoy it? What if they want the interaction? No, they do not want the interaction. Ecologically and evolutionarily, human beings are an apex predator. Apex predators do not want to interact with other apex predators unless it's in that super mutualistic, really super cute way that we recently saw go viral on social media, on Twitter, of the coyote and the badger going hunting together. That's the thing. There are, But even then, that's a sim- as you said, that's a symbiotic relationship exactly. where they're not hanging out because they're cool, you know, yeah, which exactly. I think they definitely are cool. Mm-hmm. That is a very specific, um, specific interaction, specific relationship that has naturally evolved over the years. If you are putting an animal in captivity for the purpose of, of cuddling it, that, that's not natural. That is not in any way conducive to that animal's welfare. That animal will never be able to return to its natural environment because it has become so dependent on people for its food resources, for its shelter. It no longer has that ability to to depend on its instinctual behavior in the way that it would have been trained in had it been raised by its own mother in its own natural habitat. Additionally, if you do release those animals back into the wild, because of their dependence on people, they're going to find human settlements, human civilizations, they're going to find these places and look for that support that they were given throughout their child their their childhood like their people but (laughs) you know what i'm saying (laughs) throughout their development stage Mm -hmm. um and another thing about interacting with wildlife is there's so many zoonotic diseases that can be contracted between people and wildlife it just i can't even go into it and even scratch the surface but they're just don't do it (laughs) i mean i won't scratch the surface but i'll i'll knock on the surface by reminding listeners that the bird flu was something that went from animals to humans. The swine flu is something that went from animals to humans. And Zika is something that went from animals to humans. Mm-hmm. Uh, just off the top of my head. Oh, and actually the coronavirus, right? Like the most recent, uh, this one is something that came yeah. from animals to humans. The exact chain of command, so to speak, I'm not familiar with. But um, I know that that was something that started in an animal, mutated. Mm-hmm and found its way to a human. Now mm-hmm. a few humans, but... It's one of the other things, too, um, when we're talking about diseases, and I don't mean to bring this back up, I'll just say it super briefly, but with the connection between feral cats and coyotes, there is um, a... I don't remember exactly what... It might be a flagellate? I'm not sure. But there is a disease, and it's called 
Toxoplasma gondii. That is something that is spread from um, domestic cats. It can be it can be any feline species, to my understanding. But when we support these feral cat colonies, they are carriers of this disease and can then spread it to any native mammal because it's not it's not specific to felines. Um, that's just their their um, what's the term the ultimate host or something like that where they do the reproduction reproductive cycle mm-hmm. and then go to infect other species. Um, but they can spread it to other native mammals Mm -hmm. and native mammals includes us. (laughs) So, you know, you can contract this disease by a supporting feral cat colonies in, you know, these areas in certain ways, but then also intentionally interacting, physically interacting with wildlife. There's, there's so many different risks associated with initiating unnecessary interactions with these animals and also with um in regards to people allowing their dogs and things to play with coyotes which i'm still when i say that it just it's still a very confusing thing to me that people do that and think it's okay somehow but um one of the things that people don't really recognize is that vegetation is a a huge indicator of coyote presence and so if you have you know that's why in suburban neighborhoods we see so like kind of a, a little bit more of a dense population of urban wildlife than we do elsewhere because they have this vegetation to hide in and to um, reside in things like that so when you have really dense vegetation that's also perfect habitat for mosquitoes so why mm-hmm. do i bring that up that's because these mm-hmm. mosquito species adc orensis they carry dog heartworm. And if you are allowing your dog um, to interact with, you know, a coyote in close proximity or something like that, you're increasing its chances to contract dog heartworm from this coyote. But also if you are somebody that has a lot of kind of unkept vegetation on your household, mm-hmm. um, that is another attractive behavior as far as, you know, if there's fallen fruit or vegetables, mm-hmm. if you have mm-hmm. a garden, um, if you have standing water, these are all things that can contribute to mm-hmm. uh, the spread of disease between domestic and uh, domestic animals and wildlife. Oh wow, that 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 sounds really great, and and in fact, it inspired me to, you know, I want to work with you some more and maybe get you on um, urban wildlife, so that we could. I think it'd be really creative if we, meaning probably you, Tony and Billy, an actual scientist. Um, work together to come up with a list of things that you know a new homeowner should understand about the wildlife around their house not just the you know when to take out the trash when trash day is you know when you know septic system yeah we should know about that but i think they should also know about you know what happens when you put out food what happens when you let your backyard uh, be overgrown or what happens when you let invasives into you know like there's just so many things that i think uh like from what you said we can really dig into that topic and and i mean it would be arbitrary to make a top 10 list of things you shouldn't do as a homeowner to protect the environment but i think that would be a clickbaity title that would get enough attention to people i've not thought of something like that before that would be amazing actually you're over here inspiring force it doesn't really force someone to to kind of dig into the literature or anything like that it's just a it's just a how-to guide you know just Here's some things that you should avoid if you care about animals, period. <laughs> like it's, it's yeah, really, there you go. There you go. And something that I don't think people realize, this is, these are really easy things to implement into your lifestyle um, as far as just, you know, knowing how not to interact with wildlife, knowing what not to do around your household, like you're saying. These, these things, these are really easy changes to make, but I think because of how we've been taught to think about coyotes, we just it seems like this huge task of like oh my gosh there's this native predator that i have no like i don't know anything about and they're vicious and they kill livestock and i don't know how to protect my family like that's how the media makes us think about it mm-hmm. but it, it's really not they're just coyotes are chilling they just want to live and there are just very simple things we can do to help them do that absolutely and you know to be fair um when i googled coyote the first thing that came up was a story about a coyote attack in chicago in january a couple mm-hmm. weeks ago i just i just saw that one um you know i can't even remember the full context of that story but i immediately when i see those stories my first thought is what did the person do because it is so rare 
that any animal, including predators, it doesn't matter how big or small that predator species is, it is so rare that an animal is just going to go up and attack you. Um, but I have, in, in the book, I do have a table that was um, written by uh, a story, or not a story, a, a study in 20 something, I don't know, 2015, 2019, somewhere between there, um, about just a level, a a scale of habituation of coyotes and how you can start to determine like, okay, maybe this coyote is either rabid or they're extremely habituated or I'm doing something to contribute to their habituation because yes, I'm not, I'm not going to lie. There are some cases where a coyote will initiate contact between either a human and themselves or domestic um, pet and themselves. However, that is not the norm. And the way that these stories are told is really feeding into that narrative that coyotes are just out to get everything. And that couldn't be farther from the truth. It just couldn't. Very well said. Very, very well said. Um, and I think something that you're doing, as you, you know, one thing is you're talking about the problem, but in defining it really well. And I think in that, um, part of the effort that you're supporting is making a more uh, a more clear more accurate more positive narrative for coyotes or even in general wildlife management from the idea of exterminating pests to um, finding a way to mitigate and and better define the habitual nature between yourself and some of these um, uh, predators really I mean that, that I'm talking about specifically because yeah. there are some pests that aren't predators like bed bugs <laughs> yeah, I mean, <laughs> hey, they, just... can be, they can be considered predators. I mean, they're they're feeding on your blood, <laughs> so well, they're, they're they make a lot of people pray. Yeah, they make they make a lot of people pray. I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> and and so this is some of the work of Psycom, wouldn't you say? Yes. Absolutely. And absolutely. You know, with me being a very basic person, um, and <laughs> for for the uh, what is it called? I guess for the book end of this conversation uh i want to talk about psycom again and really get in depth about how you are a creative and how you're a writer and how you use your platform with black flower science co to do that yeah so um that that definitely does get to the core of what my goal has always been and i just want a to repair the relationships between scientists and the general public because that is something that has been so broken for so long people do not trust scientists i I would venture to say at all anymore um and so that that's something that i think psycom is just beautiful for because it it reminds people that scientists are human beings too that we we're not researching things to, you know, for the purpose of conspiracy plans or anything like that. We're researching things because we care about them, we're curious, and we want to change things. And so I think SciComm just allows people to remember that, hey, scientists, they, they actually do have a reason to do what they're doing, and they, they want to teach people. Um, and so it, it's all about kind of building that bridge between you know, somebody, a member of the general public who may have a slight interest in, in wildlife to somebody that, you know, is, whose life is dedicated to researching them and kind of going into, you know, rebuilding positive perspectives on, on predator species. I try to remain as broad in my topics as possible on my platform, but I always come back to coyotes because I, it's so important that people realize that I don't, this isn't a a reductionist, um, intentionally reductionist thing to say, but they're just animals. They're just animals. And so are we. They're not out to get anybody. (laughs) They're not planning anything to take over, you know, human spaces or anything like that. They're just animals and they're just trying to survive. And if we can see them as that, because we can't, we cannot see coyotes like that in this country. We absolutely can't. We have to see them as some sort of villain. If we can see them as just another native species, then we can really start to 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 give them the attention and protections that they deserve. Because I was surprised to find that even in research, we don't even study coyotes 
the way that we study other um, canine species. We just don't. We study wolves very much. Dogs are a very, uh, very much up and coming model species um, or model organism, excuse me. And a lot of cognitive research, um, a lot of wolves have been studied. Foxes have been studied, but it's only just now starting a trend of people studying um, coyote ecology or excuse me, coyote cognition, because we have, we do um, know quite a lot about coyote ecology and behavior and all that kind of stuff. But in terms mm -hmm. of catching up with other species, there's just, there's so much that hasn't been learned about coyotes. I believe that's just because of how negatively we view them. Um, and so that's part of my goal is just not only repairing that relationship between scientists and people, but also repairing that worldview and that uh, perspective of, you know, maybe wildlife isn't really that bad. Maybe predatory <laughs> species really aren't trying to eat my dogs and my children 24-7. Like, maybe there's actually <laughs> something to this. That's uh, very well said. Yeah. <laughs> very, very well said. And Jasmine, I, I'd like to close this out with a word for wildlife. You said plenty of words. I've said plenty of words, but this is a segment I'm testing out where we just say one word and we can talk about that word. But um, because this is my show, I'm going to go first. Okay. Um, <laughs> my word is habit. It's a word that I think we've said in a lot of different ways, habitual being one of them. But I decided to go with habit. And um, my thought on the word habit is if you can explain your habits um, in, in the form of a book, a single action is a word and a habit is a chapter. And those chapters can show a theme. And then that theme is obviously going to be what the book is about. And so when you think about what our habits have been and how these habits can um, describe how we treat wildlife or how we understand conservation, um, I think then that's when we can start peeling back and saying, okay, what are, what are the actions that we're taking that's supporting this habit? What are the actions that we're taking that's supporting this narrative that you know, is, is, is not helpful ultimately and is, is not going to be helpful to us or wildlife uh, in the long run. Well, so what is your word for wildlife? So my word, um, it's kind of cheating, but it's kind of not cheating. But my word <laughs> you can do whatever is life-giving. Um, and my reason for that is because it, it's quite literal, but it's also figurative in a sense. Um, the figurative side is just for me personally, I, since I, this is so corny to say, but since I was a kid, I've always been all about wildlife. Like my parents used to take me to San Diego Zoo. I have been, you know, I've had hermit crabs and geckos. I, I've always loved wildlife and they have been a source of just energy and passion and vitality in, in my life personally. Um, and in a literal sense is they are wildlife includes non-vertebrates wildlife includes flora species it includes moss and fungi and just all sorts of stuff and so it is the very foundation on which we build our entire civilization yet we have this arrogance that we don't need it or that it's something that is only there to be utilized by us and the level of, I guess I'll say arrogance again, the level of arrogance or, or I guess disdain for wildlife is, is sad for me to see because it's, it's what gives us life. And so I would really say that the life giving is, is a very definitive term for me when it, when thinking about the natural world. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for that word. Um, we we really needed that word. Um, now with that, I guess this is where we say toodaloo for now. Um, I mean, I tried not to make too many guarantees while we're on the podcast, but I definitely okay. would love to have you um, chat more with yeah. my colleagues about urban wildlife to, you know, even talk about your upbringing more in that because, um, you know, I find that really fascinating and, you know, as someone... Who, who prides themselves to communicate this kind of science and communicate the identity of this science and uh, the story of the scientist. I think that 
you know, you have a pretty good um, voice to share with a lot of people. And I hope we can get you on the podcast again or get you some other podcasts very soon. Heck yeah. This was, this was a lot of fun. I really appreciate it. I'm really glad we could talk this out. And I really hope we can talk again more. Definitely. Well, thank you so much for your time, Jasmine. And thank you, everybody, for listening. Um, I don't know what the next episode is going to be because I really want to talk about NEPA. really want to talk about the National mm. Environmental Protection Act because mm-hmm. that was one, that's one of the rollbacks that, that we're talking mm-hmm. about, one of the ones that's getting a lot of fights from a lot of different environmental groups. Um, but, you know, that's such an evolving topic. And it's, you know, and it would be hard to find a guest for such a topic. Maybe maybe we'll do a panel. You know, I'm thinking out loud. But either way, um, <laughs> very happy that we could have you, Jasmine. And we want you to come back sometime soon. Okay, please. Thank you. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. You have a good rest of your evening. You too. Thank All you. All right. Bye-bye. Bye.